All right, guys, turn to John chapter 4. We are going to uh, begin um, this amazing story that uh, is, is, is famous and is familiar and is wonderful of the woman at the well, and we're going to spend several weeks in this story. Um, and so today I'm going to read the whole thing just for context, and then we're really probably just going to settle in the first few verses and look at the encounter. I want, I want us to see uh, how other people see this woman. I want us to see how Jesus sees this woman. And then I want to ask us a few questions about how we see other people. And that'll be it for today. We'll, 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 we'll come back to the story for the next few weeks. So uh, let's, let's read. It's a more lengthy passage, so follow along with me. We're going we're gonna to read the whole story, as I said, for context, and then we'll begin with the first part today. So uh, I'll start at the beginning of chapter 4, even though we did cover the first three verses last week. It ties it together. So now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and, dis- and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, and, and it was near the field that Jacob had given to his, son, to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. For... And so Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us that well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said to him, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and came away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town, and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into that labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of that woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they, were, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. All right. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can do it. I believe in you. This is the word of the Lord. There you go. Man, I'm really grateful for this passage. We, we should be grateful that he has given us a word. And this, this is a, an incredible passage. That's why I want to spend several weeks looking at the different um, portions and different things we can learn from it. So I want to spend some time today just setting up the passage, setting up the background a bit. And as I said, I want us to see how do other people see this woman? How does Jesus see this woman? And then how do we see the people around us. Okay, so a little bit of background. So what's going on here? Jesus is, is, is going from where he was in the previous story, which was um, down. Like, go ahead and throw the map up, Mark. So here's where we're at. We, we're looking. Um, Jesus leaves Jerusalem and heads out. After his encounter with Nicodemus, he heads out to somewhere over, this is the Jordan River here, and and it's somewhere, you know, here on each side. Him and John are baptizing people. We don't know exactly where, but it's somewhere near Jerusalem, probably not far from Jericho. And that's where they were, and then that's when the tension happens with, you know, oh, oh, you know Jesus is baptizing more people than John, and that's, that's the story we had last week. So Jesus hears that that's happening. He doesn't debate. He doesn't celebrate that he's got more. He just leaves. Again, notice why Jesus has come. It is not to draw a crowd. It is not to become, um, you know, popular. He consistently walks away from opportunities to gain more influence, to gain more popularity. I mean, they try to crown him at several points, and Jesus will pull away. So, so that exchange happens, and it says he's going to head from Judea, which is down south, up to Galilee. Okay, so that's where Jesus is going. Now, um, there's, there's some, it, it says that he had to pass through Samaria, which is a debated passage, a debated portion of this text, um, whenever it says um, that he had to pass through in verse 4, uh, because many good and, you know, really pious Jews and Israelites and Pharisees would have said, there's no way I'm passing through Samaria. And they would have actually gone around. Why? Because there's some tension with Samaria. And so um, we're going to see that Jesus doesn't do that. He goes the, 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 the quickest route. So he could have been in a hurry. He could have, so people debate, this had to, was this a compulsion from, uh, you know, God guiding him to, to this encounter? I think that's possible. I don't know that we can say for, for certainty that's what's going on in the text, but it's certainly possible. Um, you know, knowing, you know, Jesus is 
all-knowing, he's omnipresent, he doesn't do anything accidentally. So yeah, that, that's possible. Or it could just be that he's under a time crunch. He had to get to Galilee for a certain event, and that was the faster way because to go around was going to cost him um, a couple days probably. And so either one of those is, is true. But here's what's going on. Here's why some of them would go around. And so if you're familiar with the story, there's some tension with the Samaritans. And so um, if, if you know your Bible, and it's okay if you don't, but if you walked with us through the book of Daniel, you saw some of um, the, uh, the, the Israelite people in the Old Testament being um, exiled or t- their, their country is taken over and they are carried off, deported off into another place, another country, taken away from their homeland. And so um, here, here's where this all began. And so if you, if you know some of the story about God, we talked about Exodus before and we talked about God bringing his people into the promised land. He gives them this land. He develops it. King David uh, brings most of it to culmination, conquering all of the, the land. Uh, it's divided amongst the 12 tribes. This is the blessing that God has given them. We know that um, after David takes the throne, he moves headquarters. The capital of the Jewish Israelite nation moves down to Jerusalem. That's where he builds uh, his son, Solomon, will build the temple. That's where his home is. And, and so everything is centered for the Jewish people for generations to come on Jerusalem. Okay, now what you find is you read through the Old Testament and 1 Kings and 2 Kings, Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings and the Chronicles is that, man, the people don't do what God has told them to do. And God had said, if you don't follow my ways, you will end up in exile. I will punish you. And so that's exactly what happens. They end up in exile. They end up splitting the kingdom. And in the northern kingdom makes their capital city Samaria. So there's a city called Samaria. And then there's the region around that's, that's identified as that Samaritan region. And so um, they break off. And the northern kingdom goes a little, you know, a little further away from the Lord in many ways than, than the southern kingdom. And they adopt only, they only accept the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Okay, so they reject the Psalms, they reject the prophets, they reject much of what would have told them about the coming Messiah. Uh, they hold only to the Pentateuch, and, they, and so that's them. But then, uh, during the exile, um, many of the people of substance, the, the more popular people, the, the, you know, the people that had some meaning to this, this culture, the Assyrians would carry them off and, and take them to Babylon or wherever else, and then... They would bring other foreigners, other people from other countries in to resettle the land. So there's some Israelites that are left that didn't get deported. There's new people that are brought in, and they all intermarry, right? And so some of the Israelites that are left intermarry with some of the other foreigners, the pagan people from around. Those, those foreigners are mostly polytheists. They worship other gods, and so they're like, okay, cool. You guys got, you got this god called Jehovah? We'll add that to our list. We're cool with we're cool with doing that. So they kind of add in this worship. Over time, it moves from polytheism to, to monotheism. And actually, Samaria kind of continues worshiping the, the God of the Old Testament. God, the, the same God as the Jews. But they, again, they don't, they don't have the Psalms. They don't have the prophets. But, but okay, so then now, later, Israel's able to come back home. Right? We know the, the stories from Nehemiah and, and Ezra. They're able to come back home and rebuild. But there's this tension with what is now the Samaritan people. Like significant ethnic, political tension. And so even to the point that when they come back home and they start rebuilding their temple, the Jews are rebuilding their temple and the Samaritans are like, hey, we'll help you guys. And, they, and, the, and the Jews reject it. No, thank you. It's a smack in the face. That's raising the temperature, raising the, the climate on this, this brewing uh, conflict. Okay, and so the Jews view the Samaritan people as theological heretics, 
Okay, so they have religious beef with him. They, they view them as social and ethnic, really what you would call like half-breeds. Like, it's not a politically correct term, but that, that I want you to feel like how they're feeling about them. They're not pure Jews. They are not really honoring God people. They've intermarried. They are, they are diluted what God has, has brought together, and, and they're no longer set apart. And so there's that tension, right? And so that, and, and then it just, you know, you know, when two people get angry at each other, two people groups get angry at each other, it just begins to go from there. So that's what's going on when you see it, the, the, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, right? This is just a statement from John. It's not that they didn't have any business dealings, but man, if they could avoid one another, they did. And so that would lead many of the, the religious leaders, rabbis, Pharisees of the day, instead of, if they were going from anywhere in here up to there, they would have often crossed over the Jordan and traveled what is called the Transjordan like Highway, which would have cost them several days, but they would have, just to avoid Samaritan people, would have gone up and around and up in a different way. So that was what a good Jew who was afraid of intermingling with the Samaritans, afraid of catching their filth, if you will, they would have gone that way. Now, many Jews did take the route. They weren't as worried about some of these rules, right? The less religious people. And Jesus chooses to go the direct route from wherever he's at in Judea, right? Up to Galilee is where he's headed. He's going to land in Cana. And so on his way, he passes through the city of Sychar, which is right next to Mount Gerizim, which is the city, which is the, the place where the Samaritans have built their temple. It was later destroyed by the Jews, so there's a lot of tension going on there, but that's right, that's their capital, like that's where they would worship, right? And so that's going to feed and bring some context for even this woman going, okay, well, we're supposed to worship here on this mountain. Like where they would have been at that well, she, they could have pointed to the mountain where the Samaritans worshipped, okay? So when she says, hey, we're, you know, you say we're supposed to worship down there in Jerusalem, we say we're supposed to worship right there, and Jesus is going to say, not this mountain, but that mountain. It's all like, that's the context, okay? That's what's going on. So that's where we find ourselves. Jesus is walking, and I, and I don't want you to miss this either. As they're walking, <clears throat> it says in verse uh, 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was, you catch that? You're going to think about the, the, the beauty and the tension of Jesus being fully God and fully man. So there's, a, there's a movement, like oftentimes a, a liberal movement will want to take all the divinity out of Jesus and just say that Jesus, is, you know, he was a good teacher, but he's not authoritative. He's not God. We don't have to hold to that. Like we can just take his, his, his kindness and his goodness and, and do with that, right? That, so a liberal movement has, is in danger of kind of taking all of the divinity out of Jesus. But a hyper-conservative movement is in danger of taking all of the humanity out of Jesus at the same time, right? Jesus is fully God and fully man. So this is a beautiful picture. Jesus is tired. So like, I want you, like, he's like, he's feeling it, right? And he's tired. And so he's like, y'all go on in to take, like, the disciples, this is not Jesus just being, like, uppity here. It was really common for any disciples of any teacher to really serve and care for their teacher. And so Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to hang here. You guys go get us some lunch. And so there's Jesus at noon in the sweltering sun. He's hot and he's tired. And there he is at Jacob's well. And in comes this woman. Okay, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, that, like, we have to let some of this context inform what's going on here. Because it was, it was not uncommon for women to come to the well to draw water. In fact, they would do that daily. But many of you know, 
what they would have done, was they would have came, A, early in the morning before the sun came up and got really hot, or later in the evening if there was a need for a refill. Um, but no one's traveling to the well in the middle of the day. It's hot, like hot, hot. And so that, that's the first thing. Two, they would have came together. Like it would have been, you know, groups of women traveling to the well um, early in the morning before the sun came up to, to collect their water for the day. This is the water they would need to, to cook with, to clean with, to bathe, you know, wash clothes, all of those things. They got to collect the water from the day. There's not plumbing. Like you got to put yourself there, right? They didn't just turn on a faucet and get the water they needed. They had to go collect it. So this is what's happening. And, and so already we see the fact that, that John notes it was about the sixth hour that, that they would start their clock at, at daylight. So it puts us around noon, same time Jesus is going to die on the cross and the darkness will come over the land later, right? There's some parallels here between the final hours of Jesus and this, but, but, but nonetheless, let's stay focused here for, for now. So it's noon and she's alone. So already we, we can see some things about this woman, which are going to be filled in later as, she, as Jesus confronts her and tells some of her story. But we got to keep in mind as well, what did we learn earlier in John? That Jesus knows what? He knows what's in a man, right? He knows our story. If you're here, you, you may have hidden from everyone. There may be no one that really knows your story. What has happened to you? What you've done? You may have hidden that from everyone, even your spouse, your kids, your parents. Jesus knows your story. He has seen all of it. He sees you, and he sees this woman, and he encounters her. So, a good rabbi, a good, like, they're not going to talk to a woman at all, right, out in public. That's just a no-no, right? In this culture, you know, a teacher, even just a good Jewish man, they're not going to encounter, even when we were um, over in, in Central Asia in a, in, a, in a Muslim culture, much similar to this, that we were told, like, hey, don't, don't make eye contact. Don't, like, make uninvited exchanges at, at women when you're out and about. Like, you can, you can be polite, but just you don't initiate a lot of interaction when you're out in public. It's just not okay. And so that's the first thing. Jesus, like, no self-respecting Jew man is going to be talking to a, a woman. Now, this is, this is the culture, and I want you to see that, feel that, and some people will shut down right at that moment with a feminist uprising. But I want you to see how Jesus actually is going to come at that. The second thing is it's a Samaritan. We've already covered why that's a tension. Jews and Samaritans aren't going to have any interactions. But then the third reason this is a big deal is because we see this woman is not just a woman and not just a Samaritan woman, but she is a woman with a past and a present that has caused her to come to the well at noon alone. Why? Presumably to avoid the crowds of people, to avoid the whispering and the judgment and whatever else she would feel. Why? Well, we see from later in the story, she's a woman who has a past of seeming sexual promiscuity, but at the very least, she's had five husbands and the one she's living with now, right? So we see Jesus tell her to go call your husband. She says, I, I, don't, I don't have one. And Jesus goes, you're right, you've had five, and the one that you're living with now, she's a living lover, is not your husband. Okay, so we're going to look next week at why Jesus goes there. But for today, I want, so I want next week to take a look at how she views herself 
at what has gone on in her life that has led to this, like the thirst that has driven her to these stories in life. I want to go there next week, but today I want to stay focused on how everybody else sees her. And she's a woman of reputation. She's a woman who people will talk about, avoid, whisper whenever they see her coming. She has a reputation, and it is not a good one. So this is who the disciples go away, this Jesus is sitting here, and this is who strolls up on Jacob's well to encounter Jesus. Now, what does Jesus do? It would have been totally normal for him to just avoid eye contact, not engage her at all, maybe even get up and walk away. And frankly, she might have been relieved if he had. She's not looking for a conversation. That's why she came at noon. She's trying to avoid the humiliation that she feels just as a baseline about her life. And anytime she sees people, it just triggers her and reminds her. So she's not looking for a conversation. It would have been totally acceptable for Jesus to pretend she's not there or even to get up and walk away. What does Jesus do? He says to her, verse 7, hey, give me a drink. Now, this, this is huge in so many ways. Like, you can, you can hear, you could feel the, the shock from her. You could feel the tension in verse 9 because she goes, um, like, how, you're, how is it that you, a Jew, are going to ask me for a drink? I'm a woman of Samaria. So she feels the tension even without her past being obvious even though, again, she's there to hide from the crowd, so there's probably some, you know, assumptions being made. But even with just the fact that it's a woman and she's a Samaritan, she's like, uh, why, why would you even speak to me, let alone ask me for a drink? Because the other things, they did have some dealings with Samaritans. It's not a great translation for it to say they have no dealings with Samaritans because the disciples are in town buying food right now, right, like in this present time. So it's not the perfect translation. But what was really clear is that there was an absolute commitment to never sharing eating dishes with Samaritans. They were considered unclean, and to share any kind of dish, especially a common cup, a drinking, like, you know, cup, a, a, a glass, whatever it may be, there's no way, right? And so she's going, whoa, 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 you're, you're asking me for, for a drink? Why would you even do that? Don't, like, there's some incredulous response, like to her response here, where she's going, I, Why would you even ask? How is it, verse 9, that you, a Jew, again, not even knowing that he's a rabbi, prob- I mean, there's probably some assumptions there too, because, you know, he's getting kind of tended to, but how would you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? A woman from Samaria. John fills in the gaps for us, just so we know that the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus goes on to say, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus goes, hey, if if you knew the gift that God was promising, if you knew who, like what he's promised to bring, if you knew who you were talking to, then this exchange would have been totally different. And so he begins to kind of pique her curiosity with some really bold statements, but I want us to just Settle there for a moment and feel this tension of Jesus and how he, like, how he is countercultural and he is absolutely in loving pursuit of people who are far from him. 
Because it is encounters like this that Jesus be, like really begin to stir up a lot of controversy around who Jesus is with the religious leaders of the day. Because they have an idea that the religious leaders of the day are ready for the Messiah to come so they can be congratulated and welcomed into the fold and they can be a part of the kingdom that is reinstated for Israel. They're, they're ready for that. They are entitled, they are hopeful that when the Messiah comes, boy, we're going to be back on top. So they have some, some ideas about who the Messiah is going to come to. Jesus begins to flip that on its head really consistently and it's conversations and encounters like this that Jesus is, on, is, is taking intentionality to say, no, 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 the kingdom is like this. So I even want you to see it in this context. We just left this encounter with Nicodemus. In Nicodemus, we see that no one is so good that they don't need a savior. Okay? So what we just saw with Nicodemus, he is a pristine man of incredible knowledge. He's educated. He is religious and pious. He's wealthy. And he has influence in the government. He's like a really good dude. But what does Jesus say to him? Not going not gonna to work, Nick. You have to be born again, brother. Your righteousness, no matter what your resume is, does not get you any standing before God. He is not picking you out of a crowd going, hmm, who do I want on my team? That guy's awesome. Let me have him. Nope. He goes, no, no, you got to be born again. Anyone who wants to see the kingdom of heaven has to be born again, right? So in Nicodemus, we see that no one is so good that they don't need a savior. Here with this woman, we're going to see the flip side. We're going to see that no one is so bad. No one is so far gone that they have no hope of a savior. And John puts these stories together, I believe. Remember the whole point of John, the author, writing this book, the whole reason he wrote it was what? So that we could know Jesus and believe in him for salvation, so that we could have eternal life. John wants us to see that Jesus is the one bidding both of them to come and be saved. This is the good news of the gospel. So John is, is putting these stories together. Jesus is intentionally going to these encounters, and what I want you to see is that Jesus crosses ethnic and religious and social and moral boundaries to get his people. Jesus, the bridegroom. Remember that from the previous passage? He's the, he's the groom. He's getting a bride. John says the one who has the, the bride is the one who it's all about. The one who has the bride is who the wedding is for. Jesus is the groom. He is the one coming to ransom for himself a people. And Jesus doesn't just come to the people who are put together and who are religious and are cleaned up. In fact, he says, I see through you you religious, put together and cleaned up. You're like whitewashed tombs or whitewashed cups. You're clean on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of filth. He sees through the religious garbage. He sees through the pretending. How many of you, like, listen, part, our church gets partly populated because of our authenticity because we don't pretend that we're doing better than we are. And yet we still have this tension. But so I know that some of you guys are here because you can't stand the plastic pretending of some of the religion and other churches that you've encountered. You can't stand people that put on suits and put on dresses and go in on Sunday and put on smiles and act like everything's okay. And then you find out later their marriage has been horrible for years, they're sleeping with other people, or, or they're, they're just a horrible human being, whatever, and you're like, wait, 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 that's not what I saw on Sunday, and you can't reconcile it. And so you have no taste for that. And, and let me just tell you, I don't either. 
And let me just tell you again, Jesus doesn't either. He's not interested in a people who pretend to be good. He says, no, no, all will need a Savior, period. And only realizing your need gets you to the point where you can receive the Savior. So, Jesus, the groom, is going to go across ethnic boundaries, across religious boundaries, across moral, social, economic boundaries, lines that people have put in the culture, even lines that he himself put in place. Some of these ceremonial laws, some of these civic laws that, that you know, they've said, hey, don't, you know, don't, like he did tell his people, don't intermarry with people of other you know, um, nations because they'll lead you to pagan worship, right? It's not about their ethnicity that's, that's wrong. It's about their worship. And so he, he did call his people to be set apart. Absolutely. But now he has come to bring in a new kingdom. Again, that's the other theme John has been walking us through. Jesus is the new and better kingdom, right? He's the new and better wine of the kingdom. He's the new and better bridegroom of the wedding. He's the, the new and better baptism. He is the new and better. So here we have a people who have been very you know, conditioned to be worried about cleanliness, to be worried about whether or not they're, they're going to be in association with people who might make them unclean, right? And so especially rabbis, but any good religious person would have avoided People who are sick, people who are known to be sinners, they don't want to do any association with them. Why? Because if I come in contact with them, they, their uncleanness will make me unclean. And I'll have to go through a ceremonial process. I'll be set apart from it. Like, it's a whole deal. Jesus comes, and instead of avoiding those who might make him filthy, Jesus goes right toward the people who the society and the culture have said they're filthy. And instead of Jesus catching their filth, Jesus begins to reach his hand out. And instead of their uncleanness being transferred to him, his righteousness begins to cleanse and make them whole and make them new. He's transforming. He's bringing a new kingdom. It's an amazing and glorious thing. And so this is a, this is a glimpse into that. This is Jesus intentionally going after people that the society has written off. Whether he, whether he had to go there because he knew he was going to meet this woman or not is really not crucial to understanding the story because after he is there, after she is there, it still would have been... The, like, even when the disciples get back, they're like, we're not talking... Like, why are you talking to her? Like, we don't, we don't talk to her. We don't talk to women. We don't talk to Samaritans. And she, I think, has a story. Like, and so whether he had to go there because he wanted to have this encounter or he's just there, it tells us something about Jesus not caring about the social lines that we've drawn and instead coming after his people. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, after ha having another encounter with a guy that people could not believe he was even speaking to, a guy named Zacchaeus, he says in Luke 19.10, he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus will say later, hey, why would a physician come to the people who are doing really well? Who needs a doctor? Those who are okay or those who are sick? Those who are sick. He says, that's who I've come to, to seek and to save that which have lost, was lost. And so Jesus pursues her across these, these moral, ethnic, religious, social, economic back boundaries and background, all of those things. He goes right through it, and he dignifies her 
with a conversation. Absolutely, the conversation is going to lead to, to gospel salvation. But just in this moment, I just want you to see that he dignifies her by just saying, hey, could you, could you give me a drink? No one would speak to her that way. No one would want to share a cup with her. Not, probably not even her fellow Samaritans want to be at the well when she's there. So Jesus, not only does he not run away, not only does he not avoid her, he sees her. He sees her. The unseen. The woman who everybody else doesn't want to see, goes out of their way, and she's just capitulated to it. She's like, you know what? I'm not even going to bother. I'm just going to go at noon. I don't want to hear their whispers. I don't want to feel the pain of them not speaking to me. So I'm just going to go at noon. Jesus doesn't avoid her, doesn't run away from her. In fact, he leans in, he starts a conversation with her, and he dignifies her. So, here's the question for us. How do the people in our culture, in our society, that are unseen, that are marginalized, how are they treated by Jesus' people? And we don't have the ceremonial stuff, the uncleanness. Like we don't have the same types of things that, that draw our divisions, do we? We're not worried about, uh, well, they're ceremonially unclean or they're another religion. It's not that, but we have our divisions, don't we? Are we pretending like we don't have our parts of town? Neighborhoods? Streets? Particular gas stations? We have our divisions, don't we? We have our places we'd rather not go, rather not see people, rather not run into. Our, we have our types of people that we're not drawn to. In fact, eh, we'll probably go the other way. We might pull our kids a little closer. We have those people, don't we? We have those other things. They're social, other economic, like addicts. We have all of these things, promiscuous people. We have like people who are in extreme poverty who don't smell like we would like them to smell. They don't look like we would like them to look. They don't dress how we would like them to dress. They don't live in a home that we would like to live in. And so, therefore, we would rather not have to encounter them. Here's what I want you to ask. Are those people, are they welcome here? At the journey? And then secondly, when you're not here, do you see them? Do we see them? Now, you may say, well, Jordan, like, we're not Jesus. We don't know everyone's story. Like, we're not going to be able to, like, call out her need. And, like, no, no, I know, but... Sometimes we forget Jesus' broader mission. Yes, he's here to encounter that woman to bring salvation to her. Absolutely. But he's also forming his disciples. Why? So they can keep doing the kind of ministry that he's doing after he leaves. You understand that? Because they are not prone to do that. They get back, and it's kind of like the, <laughs> there's kind of clown music happening. They're just like showing back up like, all right, Jesus, you want to eat? And, they're, and like Jesus clearly in this deep moment of in, in, interaction, and they're just like, Jesus, dude, eat. And he's like, I got food to eat y'all don't know anything about. And they're like, 
Did somebody else bring him food? Did somebody know a shortcut? Like, who brought him a sandwich? They're just not getting it. Jesus is showing them. And over years and years, he's going to show them the kingdom of God doesn't draw away from hurting, broken, sinful people. The kingdom of God draws near. And what is hurting, broken, and sinful, the kingdom of God draws near to bring healing, repair, and righteousness. So, and then, his broader mission is not just for his immediate disciples that are going to carry on the church when he leaves, but then it's for you and I. Like, he's forming the church for us to have this posture. Think of this story being in the Bible, forming so many generations of his people. He wants us to see what he has done and to see people the way that he sees people and to respond to them the way that he responds to them. So, yeah. He does send us to do the same. So I want you to think about it again. Are people like this woman, right? Fill in the blank with whatever that is for, for us, for you. People you would rather avoid, people you've written off that you don't normally see or, or have much value for. Are they welcome here at the journey? Do you see them? And I debated about the order of those questions. Because on one hand, you could say, well, if we don't start seeing them out there, then how will they ever get in here? But Actually, we have seen, some of you have been brought to those encounters, and you have brought many of those folks into this space, and, and they've given us some sample to understand, like, okay, how do they, they feel here? And, and so if we don't deal with, like, how they're going to be received when Jesus brings them here, then it may only add to their pain. So we need to address our environment, not physically, but relationally, like from a hospitality, from a partiality standpoint, we need to address that before Jesus brings them here. Because if I'm honest, we've had some samples over the years. We've had some people who, that God has brought here through some of you. And, and if I'm honest, there's some things we can improve on. I've heard some things that have honestly grieved me and broken my heart whenever I've heard people that have landed here out of addiction or lives of extreme poverty or just lives of reputation really public sin of other nature. And usually those people will have one or two solid relationships with someone that's brought them here in the first place, but then they sort of struggle to assimilate into the life of the body. And I've heard things like, man, I, I just don't feel like I belong here. Like everybody else's life seems to be pretty okay. And they're really aware that theirs isn't. And so they feel incredibly overwhelmed by that pressure, and sometimes they don't come back. Sometimes I've, had, I've heard people say things about, man, everybody here drives really nice cars, and I don't. And so they don't feel like this is a place for them. Now, the problem is not with nice cars. Don't get me wrong, okay? And you could even say, well, whose fault is that? That's not our, like, that's not our fault that they're feeling that. And I get it. It is partially, like, it is partially on them, their posture they have there. Right? There is some unhealth in them of how they view the world and that they feel judged without anyone judging them. I get all of that. And, and, like, but here's, and, and Jesus is going to take us deeper into the wounds of the person on the other side next week. He's going to take us into the wounds of the woman because it matters just as much how she sees herself as how other people sees her. Right? But what matters most is how Jesus sees them. And he's going to take us there next week. But those are factors on both sides to be sure. But here's what I would say. Whose responsibility is it to overcome those factors? Is it the new person that Jesus has brought in here that's feeling overwhelmed, feeling like they don't belong? 
Is it on them to get over it and realize they're welcome here? Or is it on us? As people who belong here, as like regular attenders and members, to extend hospitality, to crush partiality, and to make sure, to make sure that the people that Jesus is drawing near feel safe and loved and welcome in our spaces. So whose responsibility is it to overcome those barriers? Well, let's look back at the story. Again, does Jesus just say hi and introduce himself and say, hey, welcome. Glad you're here at Jacob's Well. I gave this to your, your father, Jacob, many years ago. You're welcome. Maybe I'll see you another time, right? Right? He could have said, well, if she doesn't feel welcome here, that's, that's her problem. Like, I didn't, I, it wasn't mean to her. The New Testament is full of exhortations be, that follow, like, there's these imperatives, these things we should do that follow these indicatives about who we are. Because we've been loved in such a radical way in the gospel, because we were far from God and Jesus came to us, he calls us to see the people who are far from God and go to them. So we are called to live and to love one another with a hospitality and a reception that is worthy of the gospel that we have received. This means that we don't just say hi to people and then to go sit in our usual seats. I'm not condemning anybody in particular. I just want us to think about this. Okay? So we don't just say hi to people and then go sit in our normal seat. If we're going to love the way that Jesus has loved us, then we're going to go say hi to them. We're going to get to know them. And if they haven't sat down yet, we're going to say, please come sit with me and my family. Or if they have sat down, we're going to say, hey, I'm going to sit here with you. Is that cool? Right? So they're not just feeling like it's okay that they're here. It's going to start feeling like, oh, they're a part of being here. Right? Then instead of saying, hey, it was great to meet you. I hope to see you next week. Instead, we say, hey, I want to introduce you to some other folks. I want to introduce you to this person or that person. Hopefully, you've got some social intelligence. You've learned a little bit about them, and you go, you know what? I think they would connect really well with blank. And you're going to go, hey, let me, let me introduce you to my new friend. And you introduce, and you say, hey, we're going to Don Sol after, after this. You want to go with us? Right? You see how that's different than just seeing when they came in, and you're like, hey, hey, I'm like Even the, the questions we tell you all to do, right? Tell them your name. Ask them how long they've been coming to the journey. Right? Those are great, but if, if they're just left to sit, sit in here, here, here's how you know. And if you're new, thank you for being patient with me. I'm trying to get us all to be better at this because you're like, oh, that was me this morning. He's talking about me. No, I'm not. I'm talking to all of us. <laughs> here's how you know. They're already sitting in here when all of us are out there talking. A person sitting alone in our sanctuary should be an absolute emergency. Some of you introverts are like, please don't make them talk to me. Oh. Sorry, not sorry. This is the culture that we should have as Jesus' people. Because, yes, there are social dynamics at play, but the gospel should transcend that. Yes, they were probably bothered and felt the types of cars and the types of clothes. Yes. 
But that's not the real reason they didn't stay here. Okay? Maybe with a few, for sure. Some people are just people. But most of the time, those things may have bothered them, but had they been received and welcomed in, they would have gotten over those things. Those things are just surface things that were easy to point to that explain why they're not attending with us anymore. I need to hear this as much as you all. We need to be loving people the way that Jesus has loved us. Okay, We go back to the gospel here. So are they welcome here? That's the first thing. Second thing, we can't spend as much time on, but you can go there. We'll, we'll look at it next week too. How do you respond? Like, do you see them when you're out there? Do you avoid? Do you dismiss? Do you, or do you strike up conversation the way that Jesus does? Do you dignify them with a smile and a conversation and getting to know their story when you encounter people that are not like you at a gas station, at a grocery store, at a restaurant, at the park, at a ball game, whatever, wherever you are? Or do you just kind of scoot over and pretend they're not there? Jesus doesn't pretend that she's not there. She, he moves toward her, and he dignifies her with the conversation. Ultimately, leads to transformation. So, we've got to go back to the gospel here. This is how we end. Because so many of us are like Nicodemus. We feel pretty entitled to God's love and forgiveness. And when we actually, so we actually hold ourselves... <clears throat> To, to a horizontal standard, and we, we, we look at the rest of the society, and we go, man, you know, I feel okay about who I am, right, and where I stand. And when we do that, when we look at the world out there, and we go, man, I'm doing all right. At least I'm not like them. That robs us of the desperation that we need personally to treasure Jesus. And it also leads us to a self-righteousness that informs how we treat others especially those who don't share our social, moral, economic, religious standing, whatever it may be. So how do we remedy this? We need to stop holding up a horizontal standard and instead hold up the right standard, which is the righteousness of God. We measure ourselves there against Jesus and his righteousness, and we realize, man, we aren't okay after all. We aren't good enough like we thought. We are desperate. We are outcast. We are without hope, and yet there is the hope. There is where Jesus found us, spoke his love over us, displayed his love by giving himself on the cross, and made his own love known through dying on the cross in our place, and then made us his own through the, his victory and the resurrection. Amen. This is how we got into the good standing and love of God. No one is so good that they don't need a Savior. And no one is so bad that they're without hope of a Savior. And Jesus is the Savior. He's bidding us all, come, be born again, be saved, drink of the living water. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful story and this incredible um, grace that is on display. John told us you, that Jesus came full of grace and truth, and we're seeing it so robustly displayed in this encounter. And so we thank you for that, and we pray that you would use it to stir in us a right response, a response that would lead us, maybe for the first time, to know that we are seen by you, and that we would let you dignify us with the good news of the gospel, that God has so loved us. 
you do that for anybody here that doesn't know you? Would you dignify them, help them to hear the message of the gospel that God loves them, that you love them so much that you sent Jesus for them? For the rest of us, Lord, make us like you. Make us like you. It's in Jesus' name.